today on Yellowstone Tetons Traveled Podcast. So you usually start out fishing some patterns that represent the duns and, and then the spinners come back in large concentrations. And anybody who's really focused on trichos all across the country, because they occur on all kinds of different uh, spring creek type waters, you can look down the shorelines and see little clouds that look like little fog patches, which are actually spinners. Mike Lawson breaking down the trico hatch, the hatch chart, Mike's fly box, and back to the ranch today on Travel. Welcome to Traveled, where it's all about the journey we are all on in fly fishing and in life. This is our chance to take a deep dive into a specific area around the country so you have a better feel for the people, the resources, and the community that make this part of the country so unique. Before we jump into it with our guest, I wanted to share a little love with our Traveled sponsor. This podcast is powered by Swing Outdoors and the Wet Fly Swing Podcast and Yellowstone Teton Territory. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now. And if you get a chance to visit a hotel, lodge, fly shop, anything else going on in Eastern Idaho, you support this podcast by checking them out and clicking online. This week, Mike Lawson takes us into the hatches of the Henry's Fork. We find out which are the most prominent hatches out there, which flies you need to match the hatches we're digging into today. And we get some of Mike's favorite patterns, plus tips on fishing them. We're going deeper. The first one we had with Mike, we touched on a specific uh, hatch. And this one, we're going deep into all things Henry's Fork. Time to experience the road less traveled. Let's go. Mike Lawson from Henry's Fork Anglers.com. How you doing, Mike? Doing great. Thanks for uh, thanks for putting this one together. We, uh, we had John. It's been a while. Uh, I look, always look back at these. It's been... Uh, over a couple years, I guess, episode 190, we talked a little about, you know, a little more general and got into the Green Drake hatch a little bit today. Um, I was going to dig into some more, you know, dries, and, and we're going to be heading out there actually this summer, uh, later, I guess this fall, so I want to talk a little about that. But uh, give us an update. In the last couple years, I know you, um, you've you kind of uh, changed, right? You're still around the shop, but but you've changed your roles. What, what's been going on the last couple years? I kind of took the general manager hat off and i'm just more a senior consultant now but i i still spend some time up there i was up there saturday for you know i can't it's hard for me to stay all day anymore because i don't have anything i need to work on a computer and i do that at home gotcha gotcha so you came up so occasionally when you get a you know when they need you for something big you'll come up and still hit the henry's fork oh yeah i'll say yeah, cool. What what was the did you have a did you have a trip uh last week you were you're up there on? Well, no, I I haven't been doing any fishing or guiding or anything. I've been doing quite a bit of fishing on my own. Gotcha. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, I, like I said, we are uh, we are going to be coming up there uh, kind of later in the season this year, but I was curious to kind of just dig in, you know, now it's kind of we're going into June going to be july pretty quick um and we talked about the green drake hatch and maybe i wanted to dig into a couple other ones remind us again on on the green drake when's the when's that one typically uh, pop out there on the henry's fork it usually starts sometime after june 15th i'd say the the average time when it really gets going is about june uh, 22nd or so the fish 
have to have a little time to get accustomed to those big things before they get feeding on them too much. Yeah, right, right. Okay. And then, and right now, it's as we speak, we're kind of coming up into kind of June's happening this week. What's going on? What would be typically happening like right now in kind of the June, the June period other than the, the Green Drake? Well, we're into more of a normal kind of a situation like we used to. You know, over the past few years, everything's been early. And this year, we had a big snowpack and a late spring. So right now, the water is pretty high, which we like it. It's a little off color, very high, and we're right in the start of our salmon fly hatch. So that's where everybody's focusing right now. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Salmon flies. Yeah. And right now it's, yeah, so late May. And typically, how long will that salmon fly hatch go on there? Uh, it's it's generally a week or 10 days. It's not real long, but they have golden stones mixed in with them. And you can, the salmon flies all hatch in a real concentrated number in the Goldens are kind of spread out a little bit, so you can have some pretty good golden stone fishing clear through June. Yeah, through June. That's right. And, and what is the, I guess when you look at, I mean, on the Henry's Fork, at least, there's, it's kind of, that's what it's known for, right? Just the technical dry fly fishing. It has everything. Are people coming there? Is it Does it matter, Roy? I guess, are people coming there to focus on specific hatches out there, or is it more just kind of, uh, you know, people are covering, like, whatever, just show up, and then whatever's hatching is hatching? Well, it's there's no question that we're busier when we have the big hatches, like salmon flies, green drakes, and such, but normally people are coming out most of the year to fish, because there's usually always something going on. Yeah, that's right, and what would be, so if you looked at like later in the season, so we'll, we'll circle back around to this time, dig in a little more, but if you're looking at kind of later September into October, and a year like this, when you get, I guess, more normal year, are you, what would you typically might you find in that later part of the, the summer or fall? Well, you don't have as many different species, but you have some good fishing, mostly with uh, blue wing olives. And they get pretty concentrated, and so the fish will key into them. And you may have, have some mahogany duns that carry over to the end of September. They're a little more early September. And then depending on what the year's like, if it's, or the weather there at the time, if it's hot and dry, then ants and beetles and that sort of thing still work pretty good. Oh, right. And all the, yeah, the trustrals and stuff. Nice. Okay. So... And like you said, so the, the, there's not Roy, I mean, if we were coming there, whether it was June, I mean, I guess it is talking about the seasons, typically you got kind of late, you got May, June, July, August, September, and then when kind of on the other end. So when does it kind of, I guess people are fishing like what through all the way through into like November or are people hitting that year round? Uh, well, there's not a lot going on after, depends on when it starts getting real cold, you know, usually in around Thanksgiving or so, there's usually still some stuff going on. Then just depends on what the weather does. And then things start up again. As soon as the weather, as soon as the snow starts to melt a little bit, like in February and especially March, April. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Okay. Perfect. So, so let, let's go, let's just walk through a few of these. And I know there is, there's actually a, uh, a cool hatch chart 
uh, on the Henry's Fork. Uh, I believe this is the, yeah, Henry's Fork uh, Anglers.com, right? And, and so, and I do, I mean, I guess you probably had a part in this hatch chart. Is this, did you have, I'm not sure if you know the one I'm talking about on your website there. Oh, yeah. I, I, I actually did the hatch chart. So, some of the pictures are uh, from John Schollmeyer in Oregon of the insects, but a lot of those insect pictures are ones that I've personally taken too. Oh, good. Okay, yeah, yeah. and this is really this is really nice because you got some photos, and you got some. And let's let's remind everybody too that didn't catch that last episode we did uh, on your on your book and and stuff. I got talk about that what you have out there because I know you've got a couple that would be a great resource if somebody's hitting the Henry's Fork. Well, yeah, I had the first book I did is a big, it's a hard, well, it's not hardcover anymore. It's to, it's a paperback. It was both these books were published by Stackpole. And the first one, Spring Creeks, is more of a general how to, and it's not some, anything to really do with where to go. It was just how to fish Spring Creeks, what hatches to expect, how to approach fish, all that sort of thing. Then the second book is more where to where to fish and how to fish there, and that's specifically focused on the Henry's Fork and a couple of the smaller tributaries. Yeah, Henry's Fork. That's right. Okay, and and so that's good. We'll put a link in the show notes to that um, at uh, at the Henry's Fork Anglers dot com, and uh, and I guess just maybe we'll keep on that line a little bit for those that maybe missed that last episode we did. As far as what you have going, I'm you know the Henry's Fork Anglers obviously. Um, that's, that's your shop. But I think in the last few years you've, uh, you've sold that or describe where, where, where that's come from, because you built one of the most well-known fly shops, you know, probably, you know, definitely in the West, if not the country. Yeah. Well, we started it in actually in 1976 and then in 1999, we ended up selling it to, uh, Mark Rockefeller from New York. Mark loves to fish, loves to come out here, loves the Henry's Fork, but is pretty much a, uh, I guess, a quiet owner. He doesn't get involved at all in the. So anyway, that we signed a contract in 1999 to stay on for three years, but we're still pretty much still here. My, my wife and I both. Oh, nice! That's that's awesome. So yeah, that's what it was. So you uh you planned to you signed the contracts down for a few years and then you stayed on basically 20 years longer now that's pretty amazing like what is it about um and i've asked this we've had a number of episodes like i said covering some other shops and big names people around the area um but what is it about the henry's fork and that part of the world that to you that makes it so special well it has so much diversity and the very upper parts to true spring creek then it flows into a reservoir and so it comes out kind of like a tailwater that's island park reservoir forms a box canyon fast water then you get about eight miles of spring creek really flat wide as it flows through meadows then it drops about a thousand feet in elevation over the next 10 or 12 miles and so it's very fast a big canyon with some waterfalls and then it comes back out into another reservoir which is a power generating reservoir but it doesn't they don't have any water rights so that it's just a flow through hydro and then uh, below there it actually seems to have a benefit to the river because it helps cool the water down and 
then the flows are usually pretty manageable compared to some tailwaters. Right, right, right. So it's the diversity. So basically there's all, yeah, from the small spring creeks up to the tailwater, you got it, you got it all in this fairly, uh, well, how, what is the length there that you just described? How many miles is that total? Well, the whole thing from the big springs to where it uh, joins up with the main snake near Rexburg, it's close to 80 miles. Yeah, 80 miles. Right, right. So there's tons of water. So when people are coming in to fish it for the first time and they're thinking or kind of questioning, like, where do they start, you know, up high, low? What's your recommendation typically on, on that? Well, it depends on their experience. And it's hard because you have to visit with people and kind of see what where they're going to be if they're really into the what they've read about the river and they're pretty accomplished angler we we can send them probably into the harriman park but also uh depending on the time of year it can be really great fishing down on the lower part of the river too the lower part okay good well, let's maybe take it through, and I think this hatch chart is going to be something that will be kind of cool to not only have people take a look at, but just kind of walk through it if you're here on the flies. Because, yeah, I mean, you have everything. It seems like you got every single mayfly you can imagine, plus you got caddis and, uh, and like we said, some of the salmon flies as well. I guess kind of starting with the top of this on the hatch chart, you got the gray drake. And we talked about, I guess, there June, July, which is coming up quick. Is that one? What What's the gray drake? Uh, give us a little snippet on that. What, what's What's that one look like? How do you prepare for the gray drake hatch? Well, the gray drake is in the one that I personally know the least about. And that's the same with about everybody. Because by that, I mean it's a, a little unpredictable. Some years you don't even hardly get any. Uh, the main part of that hatch occurs the further down the river you get the nymphs are swimmers and they like uh water when it's flooded you know in the spring that's when they really mature they have to crawl out to emerge the duns do so they're going to need grassy exposed areas on the banks and and other structure and then uh they all come to the river as spinners all concentrated so you really don't have a hatch that you can fish the duns but it's a big concentration of spinners uh they'll get back in the mornings and again the evenings uh they're about a size 10 or 12 and uh it can be really concentrated when it happens okay yes it can happen so this whole hatch can happen literally in like a kind of a week's time and then be gone is that a possibility well no they that that's the peak of it's about a week but there's usually quite a few around for the next couple of weeks i'd i'd say three weeks or so three weeks so. and then and you got some patterns here which is cool too you've got some nate like the um some nymphs the feather duster nymph you got and then the gray drake spinner parachute atoms of course and some other other flies um i guess does it matter on the pattern on that just to get right size and kind of i mean i guess the adams is a pretty generalist fly well it can you know the the hatch chart and obviously it is hard to go back and edit it and change yeah. it and <laughs> yeah. flies are flies are always changing so the flies recommended on the hatch chart are pretty much generic patterns but then uh when we get to uh, specific patterns, we do carry 
some really good gray drake specific spinners which is what you need to have so and sometimes i like to use a double setup i'll use a parachute item so i can really see and then i'll drop a spinner off of that about a foot which are so you're both you're fishing two dry flies but the spinner is really difficult to see so that's oh, kind of what i like to do that's awesome yeah i love that tip so basically run a run an Adams, kind of your generalist that you can see it really clear and then uh, and then just have that little tiny well i guess it's not tiny though we we're saying you're saying like 10 or 12 right for that spinner yeah 10 or 12 it's just that it's going to be the it's going to work best if it's flush in the surface film so that makes it a little harder to see even though it's big I see. Perfect. All right. Let's, um, and let's keep going down to this. I think we're going to hit a few of these and because it's really interesting as I look at these and some of these, I'm not even quite sure I've haven't even heard of these. So, so the next one you have, and again, this isn't, like you said, you probably did this a while back and there's some updates here, but I'm just like on the pink Albert. So talk about that. I I don't actually know. I've never heard of that one. What's the deal with that? Is that still something going on? Yeah, that's a, it's a Western uh, species of the Epiorus, which is what the quill gordon was supposed to imitate back east and our western ones are much lighter and a little more almost uh pale morning dun colored only with more of a kind of rusty pink color and to be honest they're probably the least important mayfly we have on the actual henry's fork but they're uh, they're real important on the main snake on the south fork of the snake in uh july late july usually late july okay yeah yeah perfect so and that's what you have you have the peak of kind of the green is the peak and then on the tail end june august you've got the lesser peak so okay so the pink albert's kind of more more um uh, south fork of the snake so let, let's stay on the the henry's fork then as we go here so the mahogany dunn is that one that's uh, pretty important for the henry's fork yeah it really is it starts showing up in september and it's uh a larger fly than we're used to fishing that time of year because by then you're mostly fishing trichos and little ants and stuff and the mahogany dunn's about a size 16 or 18 and the peak of it's probably the first two weeks september and then a little bit before then and depending on the weather it'll go into october Okay, in October and, and the um and again some of the fly, you know, this is the probably the most maybe the most popular fly ever, right? Is the Sawyer, the Sawyer's pheasant tail nymph. Is that still a good pattern to use if you're nymphing? I think it's still the best. It's what I use. Yeah, and then and then for dries you've got the mahogany dun and the parachute. And so is that one have the same as far as your you could hit the dun and the and the spinner for that one? Yeah, the spinners aren't much of a factor because uh, they don't seem to come on in very strong numbers at, at any one time. So it's mostly the duns. And and it doesn't hatch real heavy. The, you'll see them coming off, but the fish start looking for them. But and that's important to remember because you can find fish feeding on, like, for example, uh, trichos or little blueing olives. Uh, but when they see a mahogany dun, which is much larger, they, they will take it. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake, and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between. Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. And so this is interesting because, you know, the dry fly, I think for a lot of people is a big struggle, you know, because there's like, especially here, there's so much, it's technical. They've seen a lot of bugs. What, what's your recommendation for somebody coming in there? If, you know, I think getting a guide would be probably the, the number one thing to do maybe for at least a day or something. But if they didn't come in that, how do you explain that on the dry fly? How do you get, because we we're going to talk about some of the flies and patterns. Um, but what's the recommendation to find out really what's going on any given day that you show up or week? Well, again, that, a lot of that is determined with uh, their expectations and experience level. And if they're really have done quite a bit of spring creek fishing, so they understand how to make uh, slack line casts, how to keep drag off the fly, that sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, we, we'll steer them into the Harriman Park and give them some recommendations on what to use depending on that whatever the time of the season is if they're a little less inclined uh will there's lots of other water that we will send them and we do that with the guiding too the the more experienced there's people that come out just to fish the harriman park and focus on that but there's i'd say that the largest percentage of our guide clients it's that's not for them because they usually a lot of people that hire a guide part one reason they're doing so is to learn some learn how to do it and how to catch fish and not so much on just the experience of fishing and in the harriman park you got to have your mind right because nobody catches very many fish in there Oh, right. So nobody, including, yeah. So anybody that go, even the most experienced, it's, it's never going to be easy to get a bunch of fish. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. This is cool. So here, and then Harriman, why, and that is the plate. Why is that the place for the super? Because it, everybody knows it is the most, it's the most challenging and that's what is kind of the game. That's what makes it interesting, makes it fun. I think, I really think the biggest reason is the, just the tradition that's carried over from Oh, years ago, it nobody knew anything about that's back when it was called the railroad ranch. And then some of our riders, especially back in the early 70s, uh, Joe Brooks and Ernie Schwebert, and some of those, they and, and pretty soon it was showing up in all the national publications. And so people focused, started showing up in big numbers here and a number of them left with <laughs> didn't meet their expectations because like i said it's it's not a river where you're going to find pods of big fish rising that sort of thing you really have to hunt for them and you have to know how to approach the fish to get in position uh have a pattern that's going to look 
like what they're eating, and then you got to be able to prevent the fly without any drag on it. So, you know, that there's a lot of people that don't really like that and because you may not catch anything. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, the analogy uh, on whatever fish is hard to catch, right? Whether that's musky or Atlantic salmon, you know, you got to you got to kind of be able to take a little bit of pain, right, for the uh, for the joy. Yeah, I, that that's a good analogy, I think, as far as your your attitude. You you go in just really hoping you get some good shots at fish. You know, you're hunting for fish, and and you, you can set up on a fish. I've spent two or three hours working on the same fish, and of course, oh, wow. I don't stand. You don't stand there and just keep casting because you make a couple of casts to a feeding fish, he'll stop rising, and but he'll start again, and often he'll be in a little different spot, so you got to move. And, all right. And it's all kind of what a lot of people yeah. like that, you know. That's awesome. No, it sounds, sounds fun. I mean, yeah, it's more... It's not the just come in and start flogging the water with a bunch of casts. It's literally finding a fish and uh, and then targeting that and then sitting there. Like you might have to sit there for quite a while and you're just kind of, you know, studying that fish, trying to get it. And then, then, right, you get that take. So that's the ultimate thing. You're like, wow, okay. You know, <laughs> well, what would be your tip if somebody's sitting there, they're, they're, they got this fish that, you know, maybe they put it down a little bit. Is it just you sit there and just give it an amount of time and wait? Is that what it takes? Uh, yeah, you know, they, it's pretty hard to put the fish down for good. You know, they, they're so used to anglers wading around and they don't have any intelligence to associate the angler with them getting a fly stuck in their mouth. They, they have the intelligence to decide I'm not eating that again because it's because it caused me trouble but they don't know that the angler is the reason it happened and so uh if they get a little uncomfortable they feel you uh your vibration in the water from waiting they they see a few casts that drift over them they'll either stop feeding for a while or they'll just move somewhere else and start again and so if you feel like you have your one chance and then you blew it well sit down and on the bank or or just if you're out in the middle of the river and just wait and and eventually that fish will probably come back but not always but he probably will probably will and are you fishing um you know whatever it takes so if the dries are on you're hitting that or you're fishing the equal amount nymphs is it kind of you're mixing it up to kind of do a little bit of everything there well, when I fish nymphs, it's it's I only do it two ways in the ranch. Anyway, one is drop it off the bend of a hook with little or no weight off of a dry fly, but only drop it about four to six inches. Gotcha. So that's it. So basically, that's the way to do it. It isn't like you're going to be fully just nymph and it's literally you're hitting dries and then that nymphs is the trail so that's the other a good, time yeah. it's not rising and but then if i just see a fish sitting there and under the water he's not rising he's moving around happy then i know he's feeding on nymphs so then i'll put on a nymph with a little weight on with 
without an indicator or anything and just cast to the fish. And that's that's a lot of fun. Uh, I just don't think that the typical nymph fishing methods work very well in there because of all the weeds and the slow water and there aren't concentrations of fish anywhere. So usually if you just start covering the water with an indicator or something, you're not going to, probably aren't going to do very good. Yeah. Yeah. So no indicator. That's not a key. Okay. Perfect. So, and I'm just looking here again at that mahogany done. You mentioned, we talked about the pheasant tail, but the, um, so the mahogany done parachute, you know, there's a couple of dry flies. Would there be one you want to add here to a dry fly if that hatch was on? I think, uh, there are a lot of good patterns. You know, I always like, have liked and no hackles over the years, but there's some other good flies too to imitate the duns uh compare duns are, are real good sparkle duns and then uh a whole variety of different kinds of emergers they all can work pretty well i i have not found the trout to be over selective on mahogany duns because they don't hatch in big concentrations oh right Right, right. So that's it. So they're not super selective. And on your boxes, what does that look like for your boxes? Do you have a, you know, just on your personal stuff, do you have like a box for every species or do you have all your mayflies in one box? Like how would somebody, you know what I mean? It seems like there's a lot going on. How do you do it? Well, I've got lots of different fly boxes. The way I set mine up is first of all, I have some that are focused just on our spring creek fishing. And so those are going to be uh, sparsely tied mergers, uh, spinners, uh, duns of, of a few different types. And then, uh, then I also split those into, kind of, I, I don't have just one box. For example, I'll have a box to fish the ranch for September and I'll have some, uh, I'll have some mahogany duns, lots of different blue wing olives, and probably still some trichos and calabatus. However, I usually put those trichos and calabatus in another small box, and and then I have I I don't have one system because I'll have another box just for drakes, and we get three drakes here. We get green drakes, brown drakes, and gray drakes, and they're all about a size 10 so obviously i need a larger fly box and so i don't really have any one real cool system right 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 but you got it yeah i see where you're organized i mean i like the monthly or at least a period right so you know if you're coming in in late in september october you could probably have a different set of you know a box right for those types of flies that you'd expect because we're talking some of these are just like September, there's just going to be a lot of these bugs that might not be there, right? Some of the mayflies. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. So, okay, well, let, let's keep going down this. We got a, a few, I mean, you got a bunch here. We're not going to get into it all, but I just want to touch on like trichos, right? You know, so that's a big one that, you know, people talk about all around the country. Um, tell us about the trichos a little bit. What should we be thinking about for trichos? Like first talk about when those are there and then, and then how you might fish those. Yeah. Trichos, uh, occur probably the peak month is all through august and they'll extend into the middle of september as well uh probably from the second week of august through the mid mid september and they're a morning mayfly and the duns emerge 
according to air temperature, uh, if, if the weather's pretty warm, like in the, I don't know the temperature. I, I have, I have a, uh, doctorate, uh, book that a guy gave to me just on trico. So, oh, wow. you know, there's a, they, it can get a little complex as far as they really get into specific air temperatures and all that. But when the air temperature is right, the, the duns, uh, will emerge and they actually can molt into spinners in the air. Oh, wow. And, and so they're going to become a spinner within just a short time after they merge on the same morning. And so you usually start out fishing some patterns that represent the duns and, and then the spinners come back in large concentrations and anybody who's really focused on trichos all across the country, cause they occur on all kinds of different, uh, spring Creek type waters. And you'll usually, they'll, the spinners will be so concentrated before they hit the water that you can look down the shorelines and see little clouds that look like little fog patches, which are actually spinners. Wow. Wow. That is crazy. And these are, and the trichos, I guess, are the, one of the smaller, right? Are, are they the smallest uh, kind of hatch that you fish throughout the year? As far, yeah, as far as the small, the individual flies and be between trichos and then a lot of our blue wing olives are about the same size fortunately uh even though you're matching our trichos with a size 20 or 22 hook that size hook would be a monster for back in the midwest or the oh, east coast but their right. trichos are more like 24s and 26s oh, wow, wow. And why is that? Is that just a different change of the, you know, why are they so much smaller? They're just a different species or different life history? Yeah, it's a different species than one we have out west, which is a little bigger. Yeah, a little bigger. Gotcha. Okay. And you got, and again, you got a bunch of patterns here, um, you know, all sorts of the CDC trico spinner, the renegade, which is a great classic pattern, the royal wolf. Is, is the royal wolf one that's still in your box that you got some of these old patterns? Is that a, is that still a good one? Yeah, I, I, uh, I still use quite a few Royal Wolves, uh, Parachute Adams, and Renegades, which are all classic patterns, and, and I use them for a variety of things. Uh, you know, the Renegade is one that I just use a lot as a as a dropper. I, I fish it. Uh, you can fish Renegades a variety of ways, including swinging that works real good. But but I like to just tie it off the bend of a of a fly that's a little harder for me to see and then i can use the renegade as a as a visual pattern which is very easy to see because it has uh you know white hackle and brown hackle on it and often the fish will take the renegade so it's just a good all-around fly for me yeah that's awesome and it says i'm just looking here Online it says the renegade, uh, and I've I've known this fly since I was a, a kid and stuff. And it says the renegade was uh, one of Ernest Hemingway's favorite patterns. I'm not sure if you knew that, but why is it? Um, so it's it's kind of unique. Why you know it's got the peacock body and then it's got the brown hackle on the very back and then the white hackle. Do you know the the history there with like on that fly? Who kind of where it came from? Why it's it's so different than a lot of dry flies? I I really have never studied it to see uh, 
who developed it and and but it's a four and a half tackle and it's uh it's really could look like so many different things in my mind of the fish and i think it's uh also important to realize that that fish as i alluded to earlier we we like to think of them as wily and smart but honestly they're not they're they don't have much intelligence and so you can play on their uh their survival instinct is to be selective and just feed on what they know is food uh that's kind of an inherited trait but it's not a intelligence thing so therefore if something else comes by that looks like it's doesn't look like anything they're used to eating but unless they're really focusing on one specific uh insect and often they do the renegades a great fly yeah that's awesome that's a great that's a great tip i'm glad we brought that one up and it looks like uh it looks like john hagen was the person who developed it a, a guide in i guess maybe lives in colorado um but we'll, we'll, uh, good yeah. okay but i'm sure that was that had to have been a long time ago because i fished them when i was a kid oh wow yeah yeah they've been around a long time exactly yeah, that's mm-hmm. really cool. So, um, and then, then your patterns, it sounds like you have a good mix of some of those old uh, traditional flies work great as well as some of the newer, you know, like, um, you know, whatever flies with CDC on them, stuff like that. Do you, you find yourself having a nice mix of kind of old school and newer flies? Oh yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, when you're, if we're still on trichos, I still like the, the hand spinner flush sits flush in the water, but uh there's a lot of really great synthetic wing material that you can use the biggest mistake i see people is they tie the wings really too uh too full too they need the wings need to be really sparse it's it's a tiny little fly and and the fish can get selective on them very selective and so and so and so you can't always get away with trying a renegade or a little parachute atoms or something. You're going to have to get right down and dirty. Yeah, there you go. And I love that you talked about the, uh, yeah, the tying because, you know, we actually had an episode that came out on the cat skills. We focused on kind of that area and the cat skill style dries um, and how they're different, right? Do you, what, what's your take? I'm not sure if you know much on the cat skills, like what makes them, but I guess they're just, they got this unique, it is kind of a sparser type pattern. Do you find yourself, does that resonate with you just when you hear about cat skills? Is that something you use out there or is that just kind of an old school thing that's really not necessary to be thinking about? No, for me personally, I uh, I've have a lot of uh, admiration to the, developers of a lot of those cat skill patterns because they uh they're tied much sparser than and and it seemed like in the west big bulky flies sort of were first developed when we started you know realizing the fly fishing we have out west because as you know in america it started on those streams in the catskills and the adirondack mountains there and and they're kind of a mix. They're not, most of them aren't true spring creeks, but they have a lot of flat water. They get fish pretty heavy and, 
And so having a pattern that's sparse, that isn't, isn't tied so full is very similar to what we like to do here. So we stock some of the old Catskill patterns in our store still to this day. There you go. Yeah. And that's, that's what is it. So they're more, yeah, you've got this technical, I mean, compared to some of the places in the way, like we just said, you know, we're talking, uh, we had an episode on West Slope cutthroat trout fishing, right? And that's like a totally different thing. Not a, not as technical, right? You could probably throw out any fly to some of those West Slope cutties and, and they probably take it. Um, but we're not talking about cutthroat here, right? Or, or are we talking about, what are the species? Remind us again on the species here on the Henry's Fork. Well, we don't have a lot of cutthroats anymore. Originally, it was a cutthroat river, totally. That was the only trout in it. It was it had, these are all Yellowstone cutthroats here. And, uh, you know, I, I think that between the introduction of rainbow trout and some of the irrigation practices and stuff, the cutthroats are a lot more delicate as far as their different environmental requirements than rainbows and browns. So rainbows quickly uh, displace the cutthroats, both with competition and also they interbreed. So they start making hybrids instead of pure cutthroat. And then, uh, you know, more recently on the lower river, we have brown trout uh, as well as rainbows. But then if you keep going downstream on the lower Henry's Fork, the very lower part, then you start picking up a few cutthroats again. And, and the, you know, the cutthroat trout, I, I think that a lot of people sort of have a misconception about, about the cutthroat. There's a spring creek that I fish now and again. It's a little small one uh, that eventually ends up in the south fork of the snake and it has rain well hardly any rainbows but lots of browns and cutthroat and in my opinion the cutthroat are a lot harder to catch than the browns are and they can get really selective right right so they are so the yellowstone cutthroat are probably different than the west slope cutthroat quite a bit as far as their behavior well, yeah. It, well, I don't know if the, if it's the species of fish or the habitat they're in because most most see we don't have West Slope cutthroat here, but where they do have them, you know, uh, we have them up in North Idaho and and Northern Montana and all that, and and but they're usually living in streams that are a little faster that are more freestone type streams one of the great ones in idaho is the saint joe river and and it's just there'll be long sections of quiet water and then riffles and all kinds of diversity and that seems to be what they like yeah amazing yeah we just actually you're right on because we just did an episode on the saint joe and we dug into it, and that's exactly it. It was like, you know, we're talking to, uh, you know, our guest, and, you know, he's basically saying, hey, yeah, it's, it's, this is pretty easy. Just come on up here. There's lots of room, you know. I, so I'm guessing that St. Joe is a quite a bit different experience than the, uh, the Henry's Fork, right? Well, yeah, because I, I don't think it's as well known to, uh, to traveling anglers. And, uh, then they don't, you know, it hasn't been, 
publicized a lot, but it's a great river, but it's a little harder to get specific information on where to go, what, what flies to use and all that. There's, it's a little more trial and error, I think, but it's a beautiful river. It's one of the most beautiful trout streams I've ever fished. Unfortunately, it's it's going to be about nine hours for me to get there. So I've only fished it a couple of times. Oh, wow. Yeah, nine hours. And are you now, are you down south of, uh, or where, where are you at? Like, where's your home base now? Well, my home where I live, is on, I live right on the Henry's Fork, about three miles downstream from the town of St. Anthony. And that's about 40 miles uh, downstream from, from the Harriman Park where our shop is. Right, right. But you're on the Henry. Amazing. You're on the Henry story. And then, yeah. And so that part of the, the St. Joe we're talking about, I was looking at too, because on the map, you know, if you're coming over from Spokane, heading on your way to Montana, you know, it's, it's kind of there, but you just have to kind of take a right turn and drop down into the forest service land, kind of off the, right, get off the main free, uh, highway or whatever. But, um, yeah. And for us that live here in this part of the world, it's right in the corner of Idaho next to Yellowstone Park, uh, most of the middle of Idaho is all primitive area, no roads or anything. So for me to get to the St. Joe, uh, the quickest way is to get on the freeway and go clear up. No, yeah, way up there going over the pass to not, I don't know, usually it's thinking of the Montana towns. I don't remember where I turn off, but it's usually not too far from St. Regis up in in montana right right yeah it's pretty cool we've been doing this we've been not only doing a bunch of episodes in kind of eastern idaho but we've really been hitting tons of stuff in western montana that northern part of I, and into canada too you know up into canada because you get into those places which obviously there's a border between countries but you know it's all similar basins and uh yeah the thing you find out is just you know like there's just so much like the saint joe's a good example one of those rivers that a lot of people don't know about but you could probably spend your life fishing that one right yeah i've i haven't fished i uh, had time to fish all those rivers i've i've wanted to to fish the a lot of those streams in southern alberta and 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 southern british columbia for trout most of those fish are our west slope cutthroats and those streams too but i just haven't had a chance to do a lot of it my main fishing up in the northern part of our state has been on the saint joe and also on kelly creek yeah kelly creek okay well let's uh let's jump i'm looking back here and another one i don't know that much about is the speckled spinner for the henders is that a, a important one to know it really is it's a uh, it matches up with the uh, calabatus species and it's about a size uh, 16 and it occurs in uh, usually about the same time as trichos uh, they come off you know if you have a great day in late august you would have trico fishing from as soon as you get on the water usually until nine o'clock or so and then by 10 between 10 and noon, again, depending on air temperature, is that's when you get the calabatus. And they're not common on most rivers. They are more common on lakes. But some of our Spring Creek waters like the Henry's Fork and Silver Creek and and some a few others have 
some pretty good Calabatus emergence. It's again, they they seem to hatch very sporadically and maybe a, a lot of them at night because we never see the duns much. It's all spinners. Gotcha. So it's all spinners for this one too. So if you if you're picking patterns, you'd want to have, um, I guess, yeah. There's a couple here: Calabase, the cripple, the uh, partridge spinner. So is that kind of yeah. th- those would cover you? Any, any other fly? Any, another fly you throw out there? Hackle stacker. That's another one. No, that's mostly it. Uh, if there are duns on the water, then the fish aren't very selective at all, and you can generally use a size 16 parachute atoms or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, is the parachute atom still one of those flies? You know, if you had to pick the generalist dry fly, is that the, the great, is that the best one, or is there a few that are kind of like the, the atoms? That's a good question. I I think it would be the number, if I could only pick one general overall dry fly that would work on all of our different types of water, I, that's probably what I'd pick is uh, parachute atoms in a variety of different sizes. Yeah, parachute. And that's mainly because, I mean, again, that's one of those ones that's so unique, just the parachute style, right? Because you think parachute atoms, I guess there's other parachutes out there, but why is the atoms? Is it just because of that black and white and gray that's just the general colors? Well, I, yeah, I think so. I think they that the atoms is, is just a terrific dry fly pattern. And uh, I think it was developed into a parachute mainly to get a little lower profile and and get better visibility. Today's episode is sponsored by Trestle, who has earned an exceptional reputation over the past few years in the fly fishing industry due to the popularity of their telescopic fly rod roof racks and statement-making artist series apparel lines. Their latest release for 2023 is the Jerian Universal Bike Rack Packing System, a brand new way to transport your fly fishing and outdoor gear. The Jerion will give any modern bike the ability to bring 30 pounds of gear with its front and rear articulated racks. Whether you ride a full suspension mountain bike, an e-bike, or even a carbon fiber road bike, the Jerion will get you and your fishing gear further faster and have much more fun along the way. I can tell you this has been a big struggle for me. I've been riding my bike, uh, both road bikes and mountain bikes, and had lots of issues over the years packing my gear, whether that's uh, crappy uh, storage on the back or a trailer that's just too big and bulky. So I'm excited to share this packing system, which is going to make it way more convenient and accessible to get out to the places you need to go. You can learn more about how Trestle is transforming the way you access your favorite water, backcountry, hunting zones, and camping spots. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now and be the first on the water and the farthest upstream and away from the crowds. That's Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Trestle, live your pursuit. So if you're thinking parachute, what about the parachute versus the regular atoms? When would you be using one or the, I guess you said it kind of getting down in the water, but what, what what's that look like? Well, I, anymore, I rarely fish in atoms and it used to be one of the main flies that I would fish. So obviously I think on this river, I think the main reason to parachute atoms would be my preference over the regular atoms is just because of the profile that a parachute has in the water. Uh, I would use a regular atoms if, if I'm fishing riffle water or faster water but 
I think the parachute's a little better suited most of the time. Yep. And does the parachute, what is that? Is that imitating potentially the spinner and the done and kind of the like all sorts of different uh, parts of the life history? That Yeah, that's what I think. I think where, where it puts the, the hook and the body right in the surface film, then it could look like a spinner. It could look like an emerger. It could look like a little done coming off it. It could be a number of things. Perfect. Perfect. All right. We're going to hit on a few more of these before we get out of here, but we'll, we'll hit this, make this quick, but let's hit on some big ones. So let's just go down. Is the flab, is that, is that an important one? That's a really important mayfly on pretty much all the Henry's Fork, both up in the Harriman Park and down on the lower river. It, it's probably my favorite, uh, personally, my favorite hatch during the summer months. Uh, it's a larger mayfly, very close relative of the green drake same coloration and uh it'll be about a size 14 uh most of them sometimes they're a little smaller 16s they come off uh right after the green drakes do or right during sometimes late june early july perfect perfect that's it and then Fly patterns again. There's a few here. Any any other fly? Any flies you'd throw out there as a good, uh, maybe a good dry imitation or and or nymph? Well, I really like fishing the no hackles for when the flabs are on. Either a no hackle or a uh, a paradon probably for me uh, work best. That's right, the no hackle. And what is the no hackle again? Is that one of those things where it's when you want to get it down into the surface sort of thing? Or when when would you use the no hackle versus a hackled fly? Yeah, I I definitely think that the reason the no hackle works so well is because it, you know, in the fly bin, it looks like a done, beautiful mayfly done. But when you're actually fishing it, usually as soon as you start fishing it, the wings will start shredding and and splitting the individual fibers are split up and the fly, fly will sit low in the surface film. And so I honestly think most of the fish that feed on no hackles actually think it's an either an emerger or a, or some sort of a cripple. Right. That's it. That's it. And, and on the emerger, is that, are you kind of getting down the weeds on that? Like saying, okay, this is like actually fishing something even further below the surface. Like, so not quite the nymph, not quite the done, but is there something in the middle you might also fish? Well, I, you know, you have to have a little bit of understanding of the surface film, which is called the meniscus. And it actually is a, if you look in a glass of water, you can see that there's a little concentration forming a, a little film of the with what it is is compressed molecules and so that surface tension sometimes we refer to it it can be a little bit of a barrier to an emerging mayfly or caddisfly but then once they get get on the out and they emerge then they can use it to ride on the water on the surface of the right surface tension yeah, that's it. So the flies are coming up. So basically, just the short the snippet of the life history. So they're the mayflies are coming out. They're uh, coming up from the nymph and swimming their way up. But they get either caught on their way up, or or I guess maybe they don't do that. But but once they kind of pop out, they they're they're in the film, kind of riding the film a little bit. Yeah, and they and and to be honest, most of the 
mayflies that we have, the nymphs don't really swim. We we have a few types that can swim, like betas and and the gray drakes, uh, calabatus. That those are all swimming nymphs. But for the most most of our important ones, we call the nymph uh, group crawlers, which encompass pale morning duns, uh, green drakes, flavs, and uh, what brown? I guess no, not brown drakes. Uh, mahogany duns, that's what I was trying to get to. Those all, uh, the nymphs, just, they're, they actually, when you watch them in an aquarium, they look confused, like they don't know what's happening because they, the internal uh, body starts to fill with some gas. And then that, and the crawlers just end up at the surface, whether they want to or not. And so they, then they're, usually stuck in the surface under the surface or just against but it's it all happens uh right at the surface uh i don't i don't usually fish emergers down under the surface very far they're usually right in the surface film yeah right in the surface film okay and so we talked, uh, We you know, brown drake, western green drake, those are similar timing, it, it looks like, kind of, um, maybe talk about this, and we talked about the green drake before in general. Are those all pretty similar in, in that timing when they're emerging or in, on the surface? Yeah, we've got uh, three big drakes on the river. Two of them emerge uh, in the Harriman Park, but in different parts because they're completely different mayflies. Actually, all three of the drakes are not even closely related other than they're all mayflies. Brown drakes, the nymphs are in, uh, they, they burrow, and they can swim, but they burrow. So they, they're in the real slow sections of the water where there is a lot smaller uh, gravel and sediment. And then uh, gray drakes, they like wherever they can swim, and green drakes, uh, they're just about everywhere. They're everywhere. And that's the one we'll, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to that episode we did where we cover, we specifically went into the green Drake, um, hit on that pretty good. So, so good. Well, th- those are the Drakes. And, uh, as I, as I kind of go down here, you know, the one, we haven't talked caddis a lot and caddis are, maybe let's touch on this, the spotted sedge. How's that one look on the, on the Henry's fork? Well, the caddis are, are really important on the Henry's fork. Maybe not as much so as they used to be because the water quality or the habitat has declined a little bit for them. Uh, you start getting silt buildup, and that's the big enemy of all spring creeks is eventually they fill, get silted in. And what that does is it fills in the little interstitial spaces between the rocks, and that's the the spotted sedge is actually the family is hydropsyche and they're a net maker so that they don't have a little case they're net makers and and so they need that kind of clean gravel habitat to really be effective anyway that's kind of a quickie on right on that fly right right and some of the patterns you have here we've got lawson's uh we got the partridge caddis emerger. You got the uh, electric caddis and the X caddis, right? The X caddis is another really popular name you hear about, right? Yeah. And that's basically just a big 
elk hair. It looks well. It's not a big elk hair, but it's a, it's it's a, a lot like an elk hair. Yeah, that's Craig Matthews' pattern. But most of the fish you're going to catch using uh, emerging emergent caddis, and you need we. It's kind of a variation of what Gary LaFontaine developed with Antron. We time a lot sparser, put a little partridge wing on them usually. And I almost always drop the the canister merger about uh, six inches below a, uh, a a dry fly like a parachute caddis or an elk hair caddis. But you can catch fish swinging the fly really pretty pretty well using these same kind of patterns. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So that so that's the I guess that's it. I mean, these are casts, so you're going to be fishing this differently. You're not going to be. How does that look? So, I mean, are you fishing more, like you're saying, more of this kind of emergers and, and just occasionally you'll get the caddis on the surface using some big dry fly? Yeah, the, the caddis flies, especially the, these uh, species and, and most others, they don't waste a lot of time at the surface like mayfly nymphs. They, they just uh, pop right out, especially if it's a sunny day and just sort of keep going it's almost like they can fly directly out of the water so a lot of times the uh adults not as important as the emerger right and that's especially because the life history is different right where the caddis once they fly out they're um well how, to talk about that a little bit just for those that wouldn't know so you've got the done you've been talking a lot mayflies done spinners but what about the caddis how are they when are you hitting those are you hitting those when they're emerging and flying off or when they're kind of back laying their eggs well you got you you have both as opportunities to fish caddis flies but you need to realize that they don't they're not a nymph they're a larva uh like a worm and so are uh, important to realize there are a couple things that the nymphs are swimmers and they're another commonality with them is they're usually small uh you know size i'd say 18s maybe a little smaller or a little larger uh bluing olive type uh two tails and they they're really extremely important they're multi-brood mayfly so you get the same hatch in the spring and march and april as you do in uh, late September, October. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. So that's it. That's the unique. Do, do any other of the mayflies have that multi-brood hatch process? Some do, but I'm not sure which ones other than these little blue-wing olives. Betis is, is the family of them, and they're, uh, there's a lot of different kinds of them, though. But here we mainly have just two two important ones. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And so, and so some of the flies, what would be a couple of dries that you would, you would use for the imitate the blueing doll? Well, I use the same type of flies as other mayflies, just time the proper size and uh, grayish olive body. Uh, the CDC emergers work really well. Little, little no hackles. Uh, sometimes I'll just use a little parachute atoms or a little, similar fly and then i'll drop a uh pheasant tail nymph unweighted about uh six inches below the the top fly and that can be very effective there you go 
There you go. So it rides. And that's a good tip today. It sounds like a lot of that you could do. You could fish a little dry or just a dry fly and then trail it with a little six inches, a little tiny nymph with not, not much weight. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. The shop right now, if somebody was coming in and they were going to stop by the shop, who would they be running into there? Are you, are you there uh, throughout the day or part of the day? Uh, it depends with me. I get up and I don't know which specific days I was up there Saturday because it was busy and I usually am there from the morning about eight o'clock till about one or two on days when I am there but who you would normally be looking for of course we have some very good seasonal employees that that we see them every summer but then our full-time employees my son Chris is the manager and Andy Jenkins is assistant manager. And so one of them will be in the shop virtually all the time. Good. So Chris or Andy. So if they can't catch you, they likely will probably catch Chris or Andy in the shop and they could pick their brain a little bit. Right. They'll find one or the other. And these, uh, you don't want to sell these shop guys short either because what we do is we work them on a four-day week. So they have three days off to fish, and that's all they do. So usually if someone walks in the shop, you're probably going to be running into somebody a little more knowledgeable about exactly what's going on at the time you're there than if you uh, get a hold of one of our managers, and they only have one or two days a week to go fishing. Gotcha. So that's the key. Yeah, so stopping by the shop if – if nothing else, if you can't stop, I mean, I, I definitely want to swing by and check in, but uh, even calling, right? You can give a call and just get an update of what's happened if they're, if you're heading out there. Yeah, and, and make sure to use our website, too. We've got all kinds of links on there for water conditions on the various rivers and uh, the hatches, as you mentioned, and, and all kinds of uh, very helpful information. That's right. Yeah, regional. Yeah, you do have a, good, a nice uh, regional water info, snowpack levels. And like you said, so this year you're expecting a pretty uh, a pretty good season. There'll be plenty of water this year. Yeah, we're, we're excited because we haven't had that luxury in the last few years. So uh, we had about 120% of uh, snowpack. And then we've, we've also had a, a good spring and so everything seems to be right on track for a great year. Great, great, great. Cool, Mike. Well, I guess one random one before we get out of here. What if we were coming into that area? What uh, is there a restaurant or something you'd recommend for food to stop by, or what, what's your recommendation typically there? Yeah, there's some some real good options. One would be, of course, the one I'd promote the most. If it's lunch, we have a deli upstairs with fantastic sandwiches that oh nice they also have uh, some breakfast items as breakfast burrito or breakfast sandwich perfect so that's great for lunches or breakfast uh for a sit-down meal i like uh, the trout hunter that's right across the street and uh then another one that's pretty good is ponds lodge which is about six miles north of us but there's, there's a number of good restaurants in this area. Gotcha. So Ponds Lodge, like P-O-N-D-S, Ponds? That's that's correct, yeah. Ponds Lodge, perfect. Okay, good. And uh, 
And we talked a little bit about your book. Is there another resource uh, book or anything? We talked about Craig. We had him on a while back as well that can take this conversation further. I mean, we, we're talking a little bit of entomology, you know what I mean? But it's more on the surface. If somebody wants to go deep on the aquatic insects of that area, wh- where do you point them? Would your book cover or is there something else? Well, I've tried to cover the more uh, recent information. Some of these mayflies of, uh, by the scientists have been reclassified. And so we call them something else, but they're the same mayflies. And so even... To just look at the hatches, I think uh, Swisher and Richard's book published, I think, in 1972, uh, Selective Trout is still, that's still a classic and will pretty much, uh, you can learn everything you probably need to know about mayflies. And then Caddisflies by Gary LaFontaine, uh, it's still pretty much the Bible on Caddisflies. And uh, those are the two main ones. Then, then you can get a little more generic, probably for there's nothing all that big going on with stoneflies, for example. There's not a whole book about stoneflies like mayflies and caddisflies. But some of these other writers, like Dave Hughes, uh, has done a great job. Uh, John Schulmeyer. There, there's a, a number of other books on. On, so you can get the specifics on the hatches. That's right. That's right. Perfect. Awesome. This will give us some information. Uh, so we're going to be putting uh, uh, this together in probably the next month or so. Um, yeah, anything else you want to leave us with here, Mike? This has been another great one as far as, you know, person coming in there, say, let's just say they're coming in in late uh, September, October. Uh, any rec- what, what do you tell somebody? Any other words of advice for that person? Well, yeah, you're going to fish different. We're going to recommend you fish different parts of the river according to the season because it's it's uh, can be a little bit tough in the Harriman Park in the middle of the summer sometimes, and when it's hot and dry. But it's it's very good in the fall, very dependable. So that would definitely be a good option. But it's not the only option. The the lower river down below Ashton, down to where I live, it, it's fantastic fishing in the fall. And the access is very good. The hatches are good. Uh, so that's another option that I think is really worthwhile. Perfect. Awesome, Mike. Well, uh, this has been a great one again. I uh, appreciate you for doing this. Uh, we'll send everybody out to uh, henrysforkanglers.com and hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get some people out your way and I'm hoping to connect as well and see uh, maybe meet you in person this year. So I appreciate all your time today. Okay, thanks. That was Mike Lawson on Travel, part of the Wet Fly Swing podcast and Swing Outdoors. This podcast is supported by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory. You can support this podcast in Eastern Idaho by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash Teton. That's T-E-T-O-N, T-E-T-O-N. And let uh, any of the brands, companies there know that you found them through this podcast. Don't forget to check back with me if you have a area of the country you'd like us to check into. Uh, send me an email at anytime, Dave, at wetflyswing.com. Reminder, uh, we've got our big Euro school trip coming up this year, and we're going to be jumping into this part of the country. We're going to be fishing it not only this year, and this trip is actually sold out, but 
We're going to be swinging back next year for another one. So if you're interested, go to wetflyswing.com slash euroschool to get your name in. I'll follow up with some information uh, for next year's trip. Okay, let's take a peek, one quick peek at one of those brands over there. Let's take a quick peek. Wetflyswing, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. And that is going to redirect over to yellowstoneteton.org. And the front page, we got a bunch of snow, a rabbit. We got a map, Rexburg, Idaho Falls, upcoming events. Here we go. Oh, this is cool. So actually some of these events have already passed. Um, I will still make note because there is a cool Women's Fly Fishing 101. I'm gonna take a quick look at all events. This is a real easy way. You can go take a look at what's going on. Take a look at the events calendar. Let's go over to, let's go over to travel. Let's go over to travel tools, travel guides. Let's go take a look at travel guides. See what we got going here for heading over here, travel guides, here we go. So we've got a bunch of travel guides. We've got the adventure travel guide. We got the rodeo and fair, off road, hunting and fishing, snowmobile guide, arts and culture. Let's just click on, let's click on the adventure. I'm curious to see what the big moose, what the big moose is gonna give us here. So adventure guide, let's take a look at the adventure guide. So we got this big Teton Valley and uh, the, uh, the hot springs. It's basically a summary, of some of the, or a summary of some of the cool places, Idaho Falls, and then it breaks it down by area. So there we go. So we got Miller Drift Boats in Ashton. We've got uh, highlighting the eastern Idaho. Getting here, here we go. Here we go on the ground. So we got rental cars, airport, scenic drives. Here you go. Hit the ro hit the open road, scenic and historic drives. So this is this is some good stuff. Fort Henry Historic Byway. 97 miles. There you go. Got a quote here. The mantra, it's the journey, not the destination, rings true for an Eastern Idaho adventure. All right, January, February, March, April. We're looking at the calendar. June, we got a whole bunch of months here. And then we got rodeos, counties and fairs. We got baseball. This thing is packed. It's packed. It's like the infinite scroll. This thing just keeps going and going and going. This is amazing. Oh, this is a great resource. Okay. So, tons of resources. And then, then at the end, it's got a little bit of a, what is this? A summary of lodging facilities. There we go. And it's broken down by price. Very cool. Buttermilk Island Park. So it's got everything. So basically it's got everything listed. Then we wrap it up, leave no trace. Cool, all right, so that is it. That is the um, that is the adventure guide, the visitor's guide for adventure. Okay, um, we will take another look next time at another guide, um, and I think we will dig into, maybe we'll see what the fly fishing and uh, hunting guide has. And uh, other than that, until we get to the next trip on the road less traveled, I appreciate you for supporting uh, Yellowstone Teton and this podcast and checking in with us today. Talk to you soon.